Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. We're taping live here from Las Vegas, Nevada at the MGM Grand Hotel where we're part of the annual conference for YPO, Young Presidents Organization, with 700 plus company presidents from around the Americas that are joining. So if you hear a background roar, it's because they're laughing or they're crying or weeping at the funny stories that Lori Gottlieb, our guest today, has shared in her new book, Lori's joining us from Los Angeles, California. Before I begin, you may know that I've authored the book Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, drawn from the guests that join this podcast. And the new version, Master Mentors Volume 2, is out now for pre-order on Amazon, 30 New Insights, 30 New Guests. Perhaps today's guest will be willing to appear in Volume 3 from guest on the podcast. Her name is Lori Gottlieb. She is the riotously funny and insanely talented author of the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. The book is amazing. A therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed. If you've not bought and read this book, press pause on this podcast. Go to Amazon or wherever, buy this book because you will send me a message and thank me. It's so self-aware. Lori Gottlieb, welcome to On Leadership. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So as you can imagine from the set behind me, I've read a few books in my time, multiple thousands, and it seems like books on therapy, psychotherapy, self-healing, doing the work, healing yourself are very popular right now. Your book isn't just another book about the value of therapy. It's about you and your life as a therapist. It's about you as a human being seeing a therapist and the inner genius intertwine of these two stories like no book I've ever read before. Lori, before we talk about the contents of the book and just generally today about the value of therapy, how to engage with a therapist and become mentally healthy, will you talk about your history because your start was not as a therapist. Your start was yeah. in a very different <clears throat> world, which is part of the best part of the book was to see how you got into therapy. Would you take some time and walk us through your first career, and then how it quite deliberately pivoted into a fundamentally different career. Yeah, there were there were several pivots. I took a very nonlinear route to becoming a therapist. But I think when you look back on it, I think I was always interested in story and the human condition and the stories that we tell ourselves and how we get stuck. And so I started my career um, working in the entertainment business. I worked in film development and then I moved over to NBC and I was doing primetime series development. And when I got to NBC, it was a very good year for them. Um, two shows that were launching that year. You might have heard of them. One was called Friends. And the other was called ER. And um, what was interesting was when I was working on ER, I spent a lot of time in a real emergency room with a real emergency room physician, really there to do research and come up with story ideas. But at one point he said to me, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. Maybe you should go to medical school. Now, I was a French major in college, although I was very math and sciencey too. And I thought, wow, I really love the fictional stories that we're telling on ER, but I really, there was something so impactful about the real story, seeing real people go through real things in their lives because nobody comes into an ER because they expected something to happen. So it's about what happens when there's a plot twist in our lives. And so I ended up going to medical school. I went up to Stanford and when I was there, it was the beginning of the dot-com boom right before the first bust. And a lot of people were saying to me, you know, there's this new thing in, um, in medicine it's managed care. You're not going to be able to kind of see your patients in the way that, that you want to, because I was so interested in the stories. Um, so 
you know, and I was writing at the time and they said, you know, maybe you should, you know, maybe you should do something, do something else um, because I don't know if this is what you want to do. And I, I ended up, um, I was doing a lot of writing about my experience in medical school and I left to become a writer and where I felt like I could help people tell their stories. And then it was later um, after I had my first child, when I was a parent who was working alone all the time and, um, you know, the UPS guy would come with all de the deliveries and I would sort of be like, Hey, you know, how are you? How's the weather? And I realized, Oh my gosh, I need human adult contact. And I called up the Dean at Stanford and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, psychiatry is mostly medication management. You're welcome to come back. But what I think you should do is get a degree in clinical psychology. And so now I feel like what I do is I help people to rewrite their stories, which is really the job I think that, that all of us need to do for ourselves. I mean, Laura, you kind of glossed over it, but you were working on television and movie sets, and then you pivoted to Stanford and you became, went to medical school. This isn't like you were a CPA and became a realtor, not to diminish either of those careers, but they have nothing in common with each other, and nor did yours. It took a lot of courage to make this mid-career pivot, did it not? Yeah, you know, I think I think it did, and I think a lot of people questioned it, but I also feel like when you know what feels right to you, you should follow that because nobody else is living your life for you. So people can have lots of opinions about how you should live your life, but at the end of the day, you get to choose because you're the one who wakes up every day with that life. Mic drop moment, nicely said. Let's talk a bit about the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's just, you know, it's swept Amazon. It swept the bookstore, it swept the world by storm. I find my, found myself, I have a lot of books that I have to read for the podcast, like have to read, you know, two or three books a week, mostly business books. And then I, there's a rare opportunity I'll get a chance to read a magazine or a newspaper for fun. But every night I would pick up your book as my enjoyment book because it was so well written and so self-deprecating. You'd have this beautiful synthesis of talking about your life as a therapist and with either permission or appropriate disguise, some of the insights coming from your patients, but also as you seek out a therapist to talk about some of the, the, the um, I don't want to say trauma, but some of the, out, the, the fallout of a relationship you had that ended. How did you come to learn that writing style? Because it did an extraordinarily a great job of capturing my attention. Yeah, so it's interesting because I had been a writer before I was a therapist. So I, I, you know, writing was the part that came naturally to me. It was really about the vulnerability of exposing myself in this way in the book. So maybe you should talk to someone follows the lives of four of my patients as they go through various things. And then I'm the fifth patient in the book. And you see me going to my therapist. And I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to be a person in the world, which means I know what it's like to struggle because we all at various times struggle in ways big or small. And so it was really important for me to really write this book about the human condition. To me, it's not even a book about therapy at all. It's really a book about, you know, how do we get stuck? How do we get in our own ways? And how do we move through that? And how do we live with intention and 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 finally have our blind spots illuminated? And, and how do we kind of become free, become emotionally free? Actually, I think it's a book on self-awareness because the yes. lessons that you share as you left your own therapy sessions as a patient, you know, you would leave the sofa on one side, well, you'd be in the chair one hour and then be in the sofa the other hour when you went to your own therapist. I found it, I found you were teaching me, clearly intentionally teaching me about 
my own lack of or need to develop my self-awareness as you were sort of uncovering your lack of or your need to as well as you left the therapy sessions where you were the patient. Um, let's talk a bit about therapy. You talk about there isn't a hierarchy of pain. And I like that concept. Will you give some voice to those who perhaps are struggling with crippling depression or major anxiety or perhaps someone else that has something that might seem less severe but to them is no less traumatic in terms of their mental health? Talk about that lack of hierarchy and pain. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, and I see this as a therapist so much, that we rank our pain in a way that we don't do with physical pain. So, for example, if you, um, you know, fall and break your arm, you're not like, I'm not going to go to the doctor and get a cast for this or get an x-ray because somebody else has stage four cancer. So it's really not that bad. So I should just tough it up and kind of, you know, walk around with my broken arm. But we do that with our emotional health. So, you know, it's like if you have chest pain, you'll go to the cardiologist probably before you have a massive heart attack. If you have some kind of emotional pain, like, you know, you're like, maybe I'm a little bit sad or maybe I'm anxious, but, you know, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So it's not that bad compared to whatever you compare it to. People don't come to therapy often until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. And the problem with that is that, first of all, it's harder to treat because now, you know, it's gotten really bad. And the other part that really breaks my heart is that you've struggled unnecessarily for, you know, people will, will wait, you know, months or years maybe before they even come in. So they've been struggling for a very long time. And it's not like during that time that they've been functioning so well. It's kind of like you can try to push down your feelings, but they're still there and they come out in other ways, whether that's too much food or too much alcohol or, you know, insomnia or an irritability or difficulty in relationships, like, or that mindless scrolling through the internet or whatever distraction you choose. Numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings and we numb out and the feelings come out in other ways. And that's what happens when we start ranking our pain and we don't go and talk to someone. Nicely said. As I listen to you, I'm thinking about one of the gifts that you gave to millions of readers around the world is not just this, this remembrance of how important self-awareness is, but you really have normalized the, the, what was a taboo topic around therapy. And you know, you would say, I have an appointment when it was your therapist, yes. right? I mean, I have an appointment, I can't be moved, which increasingly becomes, you, know, you must have a therapist. Good for you, I wish I had your courage, right? To, to talk about it. Um, let's talk about the actual practical relationship of finding and working with a therapist. You write about uh, a lot of patients care if their therapist likes them. Talk about the role of a good relationship between a therapist and a patient. Yeah, it's funny because when I was a patient, I, I very much felt like a patient. I didn't feel like I was a therapist who knew better. So I cared a great deal whether my therapist liked me and whether I was entertaining. And when I would walk out and I'd see somebody else maybe coming into the waiting room, I'd think, oh, I wonder if he likes her sessions better than mine or if he dreads my sessions, right? Um, you know, the relationship is so important. And, and study after study shows that the relationship you have with your therapist is more important to the success of your therapy than any other factor including the, their number of years of experience, the modality they're using, all of which are important, but not as important as that relationship. So I think people need to realize it's not the same as like going to your GP. This is a person that you have to feel really, really comfortable with in a, in a much more fundamental way. And I'm guessing, therefore, you're arguing that if someone is looking for a therapist, they probably should therapist shop, 
they should actually yes. you know, visit a few. Talk about what seems like a realistic formula, maybe not for everyone, but generally what's, give permission to people to figure out how to find their therapist right now. I think people need to realize that when you go in for a first session with a new therapist, that it's not like the out, two outcomes are gonna be either you're gonna be in therapy with this person or you're just not gonna go to therapy. It's a consultation. It's an opportunity for you to sit with this person and see what it feels like. And if at the end of that session, you feel, I would say the answers to two questions. One is, did I feel like this person understood me in a, in a way that in a first session, someone can understand you, they don't know everything yet. Um, but did I feel basically understood? And how did I feel talking to this person? And then the other question is, did this person say one thing in this session that made me think? Because you don't, you're not going to therapy just for validation. You're not going to, you know, to therapy so they can say, yes, that was terrible. That's awful. Oh, that's, you know, you're, you're going so that they can, you want compassion, but you want wise compassion. We talk about, I talk about the difference in maybe you should talk to someone uh, between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. Your friend comes to you and says, listen to what happened with my coworker, my partner, my boss, my mother, my child, whatever. And we say, yeah, they're wrong, you're right, right? We just back them up because we think we're supporting them. Wise compassion is what a therapist will do is we will hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. So what is your role in this? And that's not to say that there aren't difficult people out there. We always say, you know, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes, right? So, <laughs> so you know, there are difficult people out there. But what is your role in this? What is your response to this? And I think that if in a first session, your therapist says something, it'll be in a very gentle way, but ask you a question that makes you consider something about yourself that you haven't been maybe willing or able to look at, I would go back because I think you're gonna get a lot out of that therapy. And if those things aren't happening, go see another therapist for a consultation and, and go find someone that you're more comfortable with. Lori, again, I wanna pay your book a compliment because I think you do a masterful, genius job of illustrating what a good therapy session looks like as you recounted yours with your therapist. Because, you know, not to use crude language, but he would kick your ass on occasion, subtly, kind of profoundly. He would ask you a very provocative question and you would wrestle with it. And I thought, you'd, I thought your gift in the book, for me, was you modeled a great therapy relationship as much with you and your patients as you as the patient with your therapist. That was not lost on me. Um, another, another question I would ask is, do you propose that there's a good cadence or rhythm to how often someone should see a therapist? What, is, what does that look like? Give us some practical advice on, is it like, you know, five sessions or 50 sessions? I know one size doesn't fit all. For those who perhaps have struggled with therapy, haven't found the right therapist, or have been in for decades yeah. and don't feel they have a great result, what are some good benchmarks we might think about? Yeah, well, first of all, just, just going back to what you were saying, I think that, you know, we always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world, but if you're not making changes out in the world, the insight is useless. Yeah. So I want to know, for example, if someone says, you know, um, they'll come in and say, well, I got into that fight with my partner last weekend again, and I totally understood why I do that. And I'll say, okay, but did you do something different? And they might say, no, but I understand why I do it. Well, that's the first step, but now you've got to do something different. So I think most of therapy really takes place in the time between sessions. You do something in therapy that helps you to do something different out in the yeah. world. And so for that reason, I think therapy is a very 
active process. So when you say, you know, how often do people come to therapy? I think it, it really depends on how much they're using the therapy in between sessions. If you come once a week and you're using it, great. If you feel like you're, you know, you want to come every two weeks and you're using it in between sessions, great. But how much are you doing the work that you need to be doing between sessions? You mentioned that you uh, uh, follow the lives of four of your patients and you, do, you go to great lengths to disguise their, you know, their names, their genders, their races, their jobs, all that kind of stuff, and you disclose all that up front. Have you gotten some backlash from that, from anyone in the, in the community, readers? Have you ha has there been a downside to how you chose to write the book? No, not at all. In fact, I think that everybody has said, you know, the book at this point has sold over a million copies. And I think that the reason it has is because it's actually so real and people can see themselves mirrored in every single one of these patients, including me, because I'm the fifth patient. We all look vastly different on the surface in terms of, you know, our, who we are in life, what our backgrounds are, um, you know, where we come from, what our struggles are. And yet every reader has said, I can see myself in every single one of these patients. Yes, and yeah. I think that what I'm trying to show is that we're all more the same than we are different. And I think that you can learn a lot from seeing yourself mirrored in any, any of these patients. Laura, you also advocate against Googling your therapist. Talk to that. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, one of the issues that I had that my therapist told me not to do was I came in because of the breakup and, um, you know, I kept Googling my ex and it was obviously not very healthy because I would make up all these stories like, oh, look, he's posting a picture of a salad at a restaurant. How can he even eat without me? <laughs> right. So it was all of that, like early, very sort of raw, painful stuff that happens at the beginning. And he suggested that maybe I stop Googling the ex. And so one time when I sat down at the computer, I was about to Google the ex. And I said, no, my therapist said not to do that. So I'm not going to do that. But then instead I Googled my therapist thinking, you know, just, oh, I never Googled him. I'm just curious, like where he got his degree, those kinds of things. But instead I went down the internet rabbit hole and it wasn't like I found anything stranger or, you know, creepy about him. It was more that I found out that um, his father had had died at a young age, um, had suddenly had a heart attack. And I had been talking a lot in therapy about my very close relationship with my beloved father. And all of a sudden I started editing myself in the therapy room because I thought it would make him feel bad if I'm sitting here because I have my father and I have such a close relationship with him. And finally I fessed up and I told him what was going on because he knew that I was acting really weird in therapy. And he was like, what is going on? And I think that's the thing about our therapist is that you're not in that room to hide. It's the one place where you can be fully, entirely, wholly yourself. And I think that there's really no other place exactly like that. And so, you know, um, I think that that's a it becomes a very transformative experience when you can see yourself in all of your honesty and humanity in a way that, you know, we often feel hesitant to show out in the world. Laura, say someone right now is struggling and they've decided that there aren't degrees of pain, right? That their mental health is just as important as someone's broken arm. And they know they need to seek therapy, but they don't know where to begin. Would you give someone some advice on how to suss out a great therapist? What's the first step? Is it, is it do all great therapists come from referrals? Are there search, uh, there, you shouldn't Google your therapist. Can you pre-Google your therapist? I mean, what's the best process to, to find at least the first start? 
Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many ways to find a therapist. I think people don't realize that because no one's talking about it. But many people that you know are seeing a therapist. And so you can ask your friend who's seeing a therapist, by the way, not the friend who every week you know, comes to you with the same stuff and doesn't seem to be changing, but the friend who seems actually like they're doing really well and have made some changes in their lives, ask them if their therapist has a referral for you. I get that all the time. My patients will come to me and say, I don't want my friend seeing you because it feels too close, but do you have a referral for my friend? And absolutely, I will do that. Um, you can go on Psychology Today online and you get a little sense of who the therapist is based on what they write about themselves. And, you know, again, go in for a consultation and see what happens. So I would say, you know, whether it's referral, whether it's online, just go in and talk to somebody and you'll know whether that's the right person for you. And if not, go talk to somebody else. Let's talk about marriage and couples, or for that matter, couples outside of marriage. You've been involved in uh, multi-person therapy. How does the dynamic change? What are the roles or rules, if you will, when you've got two people engaged in therapy versus just one-on-one -on -one with their therapist? Yeah, the beauty of having two people is that, you know, we're all unreliable narrators of our stories. Yeah. And I don't mean that we're purposely misleading. I mean that we're, we're very sure that our version of events is the accurate version of events. And it turns out that we make a lot of assumptions and we minimize certain parts of the story and we emphasize certain parts because we want the therapist to side with us or we want to tell the story in a way that feels palatable to us and makes us feel like we are the, you know, we're, we're the good person in the story. And, um, and I think what happens when you have couples of any kind, and I see romantic couples, but I also see business partners. I also see friends. I see parents and adult children. I see siblings. So I've seen all kinds of couples. And I think what you find out is that they learn that there's so much more to the story of why the other person is doing what they're doing than they ever imagined. And that really helps people, I think, in relationship to to know that every time they're telling a story, there's another perspective that they're not seeing. And if they could get curious about how the other person would tell the same exact story, they can imagine it if they, if they aren't in a room with them to ask them, what might that person be thinking? Or how will what I'm about to say land on that other person? When we get really curious about the other person's experience, we tend to find that our relationships improve greatly. Well, I think that's invaluable insight is to, have everyone recognized that generally we are, as you call us, unreliable narrators in our homes, in our workplaces, on executive team meetings. We think we're representing it accurately, but subconsciously we're setting ourselves up either as the hero or the victim or the wronged person or the right person or the truth teller. I think it's really good advice for leaders to make sure that we're asking ourselves, am I a reliable narrator? How can I become more reliable? How do I find comfort in having people compliment or challenge my story, the narration of it? You said something I think interesting there. You see business partners. You've actually had business entrepreneurs, partners come in and seek therapy. Can you talk about that and, and how does that yeah. work? I'm guessing people here at the YPO conference might be interested in that as well too. They have partnerships as well. Yeah, I do see a lot of business partners, especially people who are maybe startup co-founders and they're working together in a new way for the very first time. And there's a lot of pressure on them at the beginning, especially. And they thought they were really, you know, very good partners before that, 
and then all of a sudden they, they see that there are all these different things that come up, like they have different styles, they have different anxieties, they have different ways of dealing with stress and pressure, um, they have different ways of managing people, they have different ways, of, they have different risk tolerance. So, you know, being able to talk about all of those things just makes everything run more smoothly for them. And it's really good that they're coming at the beginning because they're setting a culture, not only between themselves, but for, for the company that they're creating. Lori, what do you, I was thinking about, my, about my, my business partnership with another gentleman who it's like, it's a honeymoon phase right now, right? Is we can't do any wrong and we're complementing each, each other's skills well, but no doubt there'll be differences that come about. So Tony, perhaps, you know, you and I will be in therapy sooner than later. Uh, Lori, what do you want readers to learn? What was the purpose of writing the book? Give us a takeaway, give us a send off of what you hope is different in the world now that a million people have purchased your book? Oh, well, I think a few things. I, I think one is that I want people to really prioritize their emotional health because I think that we don't. And I want people to realize that the quality of their lives and the quality of the lives of the people around them, whether that's professionally or personally, is going to be greatly improved if they live with more intention and more awareness in terms of how they move through the world and how they navigate through the world. And I also want them to know that they're not alone in whatever they're struggling with. That, you know, John is a great example in the book. He's the first person that you meet and he's this extremely successful person in Hollywood. And um, and he, from the outside, looks like he kind of has it all, but he thinks, you know, everybody is, everybody is uh, an idiot and he's smarter than everybody else and he's having trouble in his marriage and there's a, a tragedy from his past that he hasn't dealt with. And, you know, you wouldn't know that about John, if you just met him in the world, you think, wow, I envy him. I want to be him. He's so successful and charismatic and charming. And yet that's not the John that I meet or that the reader meets. So I think just knowing that there's the version of ourselves that we present and we know this intellectually, but I think that when you read the book, you really see, wait a minute, we are all so similar. And I think that helps us to be kinder to ourselves. I always say when I'm giving a talk um, in person, you know, I'll ask people, I'll say, show of hands, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Is it your boss? Is it your coworker? Is it your, um, you know, best friend? Is it your sibling? I get lots of hands for that. But the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or useful. And I had a client who did not believe how self-critical she was. And I would hear it every time she came in. And I said, I want you to go home and listen to this voice in your head and write down everything it says and come back and we'll talk about it next week. And so she comes back the next week and she says, I, I can't believe this. I am such a bully to myself. And they were things like she made a typo in an email and the immediate voice in her head said, you're so stupid. How many of us have done something like that to ourselves, spoken to ourselves that way? We would never in a million years say that to a friend or think that about anyone who made a typo in an email as they were typing quickly. But we can be so hard on ourselves. And so I want people to be kinder to themselves, but also have accountability. And some people think that if I am kind to myself, I won't be accountable. I won't move forward. I won't be successful. And the opposite is true. Nobody succeeds because they self-flagellate. Nobody succeeds because they, they bathe themselves in shame. They succeed because they have compassion for themselves and the compassion allows them to let go of the mistake or the perceived mistake and move forward and learn from it. Gosh, there's a lot there. Uh, in many cases, the bullying that goes on may well be with ourselves as opposed to somebody else at school or in the workplace. 
That's profound. I think your biggest gift might be that at least one million people will never use the word idiot ever again after reading that character. <laughs> it wasn't a word in my vocabulary, but I can guarantee you it will never come out of my mouth for fear I actually might be the person sitting on your sofa. Lori, I cannot advocate listeners and readers by this book. It brings a smile to my face. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned so much from you about me. It was a gift, a selfless gift you gave to, to, to readers. What's next for you? Um, We're about to launch season three of my podcast, which is called Dear Therapist, where you can hear actual sessions with people. And then we give them homework at the end of the session and they have one week to do the homework and report back to us. So you can actually see how one session can shift someone's narrative, can shift their perspective and can help them through a struggle that maybe they've been dealing with for years. So we love that, you know, making, taking therapy out of the therapy room, making it accessible to everyone. Um, there's also a workbook that goes with maybe you should talk to someone that just came out and um, we're making a TV series of the book. Maybe you should talk to someone. I love it. Tell us the name of the podcast. Uh, it's called Dear Therapists. And if people want to hear more about changing your story, they can also listen to my TED talk, which is called How Changing Your Story Can Change Your Life. Laura Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. I don't know how we're going to top these interviews because I'm learning so much. I hope you are too. As always, subscribe, rate us, review us. We'd love to have you uh, promote our podcast to your friends and colleagues if you find value in them. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <music>